I had coffee once with someone uh, and we talked about books and, and I told him about my book, uh, my books about trust, starting with the book of trust. And he asked me, is there anything new about trust? What's new? What, what can you say that wasn't already said before? And he was referencing Stephen Covey's uh, book, The Speed of Trust from 2006. And other than the fact that that he annoyed me, because really he he wasn't asking to understand, he was asking to uh, kind of make a point uh, that there was no point in my books. But but there there is a point if if he was asking this to understand, because I, I tell my students when you want to start a startup company, and I am a startup company, uh, for that company to succeed you must have something unique. You must have a unique product. You can't sell the same thing that everybody else sells because they, your customers would rather buy it from the more established, the larger company rather than, than yourself, unless your product is unique. And, and I would not have started my business if I did nothing that what I do, my, my perspective on trust is unique. When I started, I read, when I started thinking about taking the direction of trust, I wasn't even committed yet. I read almost every book, every article, research article, general articles about trust that, that there were. And I really started researching it when I started working on my PhD dissertation back in 2008. I did quite a bit of original research and still all before I made the commitment that my topic is going to be trust. And obviously, long before I made the commitment to have the word trust tattooed on my hand, on my arm. My approach is unique. I, I reached that conclusion. I, definitely, my approach is unique. I have a different perspective on trust. And it's different in ways that are very important to understand. That is, if you want to be trusted and know who to trust or build trust. And I'll tell you all about the uniqueness. This time, I'm, I'm really just going to focus on the uniqueness so, so you'll know why my approach, my perspective is unique, is different. Right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? I'm going to focus on the uniqueness of two areas, two, two main, two core areas of my approach. Trust habits, which is really all about trust in a generic way and the process of becoming trusted. And then later uh, in this episode, I'll talk about trust premium, which is my more recent, my most recent research. So let's start with the trust habits. Uh, and I'm going to take you through I'm not going to take you through all eight, law, eight laws of trust. Uh, in, in my workshops and, and my keynotes, I talk about eight laws of trust that I observed over the years. I, I didn't invent them. I'm, I'm just observing them. I'm, I'm going to focus on three of them because those three are really the most unique. And the first one is actually trust law number three. Trust is personal. And, and more generically, trust is relative. And, and this is where... 
I'm going to touch on the elephant in the room because the elephant in the room is that up until now, up until my work, everybody writing books about trust talked about, or articles, talked about a set, a predetermined set of behaviors, actions, things, thoughts, whatever, uh, that each one of them is good or bad on an absolute and universal level. Everything is good or bad. And if you can check all these boxes in this, call it the checklist, in the good side, you will be trusted. If you check them on the bad side, you're not going to be trusted. The more of them you check on the good side, the more you will be trusted. But that's not the case. There's really a spectrum of actions and thoughts and behaviors that range from absolute and universal to completely personal. So on the absolute and universal side are things like telling the truth. That, that's the first example that always comes to mind. Somebody lies to you knowingly and intentionally because sometimes people lie to you. They don't even know that they lie because they believe their own lies. So I'm not going to say that they intentionally are trying to deceive you. They're, they're just convincing you with what they believe in, except that it's a lie. But I'm talking about somebody lying to you knowingly and intentionally. Would you trust them? No, I mean, that's pretty absolute. That's pretty universal. When somebody tries to lie to you, knowing that they're, that they're lying, knowing that what they're saying is not the truth, and intentionally doing so. So there's no doubt. There's a black and white here. There is a good or bad here. Um, but then it starts going down to things that are more cultural, things that in some cultures would bring trust would raise trust and in other cultures would lower sometimes it's not even culture it's the local culture possibly even you know in your own company the the traditions in in a company that certain traditions uh if you comply with them you're going to be trusted if you don't you're, you're not but another company would have the opposite and and it comes down to really really personal i mean things like risk taking things like procrastination Let's take risk-taking. Uh, is If somebody is willing to take risk, would you trust them? Well, it depends. It depends if you're a risk-taker, because if you're a risk-taker, then you will trust them because, you know, they're like you. But if you're risk-averse, if you're doing everything in your power to avoid risk, would you trust someone who's a risk-taker? I think the answer is pretty clearly no, because you think that they're reckless, that they're irresponsible in the risks that they're taking. So you're not going to trust them. But But... We can't put a label of good or bad, black or white, on being a risk taker or, or being risk averse on, on the other side. So how can you have that as a checkbox? You can. And, and this is where we're going to the, the fact that trust is relative. It's personal. And, and the way I like to look at it is that the same behavior that would cause one person to trust you could cause another person to distrust you. And there's a spectrum of things that go all the way from the absolute universal to the very personal, where you need to be compatible. And note that I'm not saying you have to be the same. You have to be compatible rather than the same. So that's the first thing that makes my trust habits or overall trust perspective unique in that trust is relative. You're not going to be trusted by all people and you're not going to be trusted by them the same way. <music> 
Next, I'll talk about trust law number six. I told you I'm not going to go through all uh, eight of them. I'm, I'm going to talk about the ones that are really making my perspective unique or my work unique. Trust is reciprocal. You know, we, we like to think of uh, trust being reciprocal as I trust you, you trust me. That's actually not true. Because, for example, if I'm a risk taker and you're not, I may trust you, but you're not going to trust me. So trust is actually asymmetrical, which is, by the way, trust law number four. And we think of if I will trust you, then you will trust me in terms of reciprocity, which is not true because I'll trust you based on uh, certain factors. You're going to trust me based on different factors and related to you or to me and to me. Uh, and, and that's going to be different. And we think of trust reciprocal reciprocity maybe in terms of if you're trustworthy, then I will trust you. Well, that's that's relatively obvious. Wait until I get to the next point. But trust is reciprocal in that if I trust you and I show you that I trust you, you will behave in a trustworthy way, at least in a more trustworthy way, because it's a terrible feeling to know that I trust you, yet you don't believe that you earn or deserve the level of trust that I have in you. Well, obviously, you always have the, the opportunity to say, well, you shouldn't really trust me that much. And, and if the gap is really too high, this might be what you're going to say. Don't, don't trust me with that. Don't, please don't trust me with that. But what happens when I trust you just a little more than you trust yourself or you believe I should trust you? It's... That feeling that, that you're being trusted more than you think you deserve causes something that's called cognitive dissonance. But as a result, what you will do is you will behave in a more trustworthy way just to justify the trust that I have in you. And unfortunately, it works the other way around too. If I don't trust you and I show you that I don't trust you, and by the way, showing is an important part. It's not enough that I trust you. I have to show you that I trust you for you to know that I trust you and therefore increase your trustworthiness if it's not there yet. But if I distrust you and I show you that I don't trust you, or even if I trust you and I don't show you that I trust you, so you may think that I don't, then you will not behave in a trustworthy way because there's no point. What's the point in you being trustworthy if it doesn't lead to me trusting you? So your trustworthiness would actually go down, at least in this relationship. Hopefully, it's not going to spill over to other relationships. But... The, the sum of this, or, or the conclusion, which is very powerful, is that you can affect another person's trustworthiness, for better or worse, by showing them that you trust them or showing them that you distrust them. You can affect their trustworthiness. And that's another unique item. Next is trust law number eight. Trust is a two-sided game. It takes two people to trust, to have a trusting relationship. What do I mean by that? Again, if, if I go back to the, the common wisdom says, if you're trustworthy, I will trust you. And it actually doesn't put, doesn't allow for any variability in my ability to trust. And so the way I look at it is, the trust that I have in you is the product of your trustworthiness, no doubt, and my trustfulness, my willingness to trust other people in general or people of your kind in particular. 
but or, or still in general because it's not just you it's people of your kind and i know you're gonna jump on me it's what do you mean by your kind you're being a racist no uh pilots doctors salespeople that's what i mean a category you belong to a category of people in my eyes do i trust those people and that's something that i'm actually doing as part of my trust premium research but i'll, I'll get back to that later so it's a two-sided game we are the sum of our experiences and some of our experiences and there are a few experiences that i share in my keynotes or workshops uh, that would explain why in some cases i don't trust people and it's because of things that I went through in my past that caused me not to trust people or certain types of people. So it's not enough for you tr to be trustworthy. I have to have a certain level of trustfulness for the level of trust to emerge because trust is a two-person game. Trust, the trust that I have in you is the product of your trustworthiness and my trustfulness. It's not just your trustworthiness. Your trustworthiness is not enough. One of the things that makes my work on trust and, and trust habits unique is the model that I built over many years of researching trust, the model that, that I call the relative trust model. So I already talked about the fact that trust is relative, but the model here is actually made of six components. Three of them relate to what you do while three of them relate to who you are so it's it's a unique way of looking at trust that separates if you take an interaction that you and i have there is a level of trust at the beginning of that interaction and a level of trust at the end of that interaction and the the level of trust at the beginning of that interaction relies solely on who you are and or what do i know about you before you ever enter the room one of the biggest problems that we have today with uh, with cold calls that, that you're getting is that you know nothing about the person calling you you know nothing your trust level starts at zero and believe me there are a lot of reasons why that trust level starts at zero and so three of the components are the who you are what do I know about you? What do I know about you for a long term, for, for a long period of time, uh, long before I ever started this specific interaction with you? It's kind of your brand. Uh, it, it can be transferable, for example, because uh, if somebody tells me that I can trust you, then I will, and it's somebody that I trust, then I will probably trust you. Maybe not as much as, as they trust you or as much as I trust them, but more than nothing. So the, the relative trust model is made of who you are, what do I know about you, but also what you do during an interaction. Because during an interaction, the level of trust that I have in you will change very drastically. This is based on firsthand impression. And that again, you know, that, that separation to the of the who you are, which could be uh, based on research that I've done or transferable trust, which is trust load number five versus the what you do which requires a first-hand impression of what you do right now and the what you do right now is based on three components the positivity what you introduce in in this interaction and i'll talk about that in in a minute uh but it's accelerated by the time that we spend together and the intimacy of the interaction and by intimacy i really mean uh 
all the way from at the bottom the interaction is purely based on words so like text messages emails and so on versus an interaction that's based on an in-person face-to-face interaction so that relative trust model and breaking it into components of who you are and what you do that's another unique aspect of this approach And speaking of positivity, you know, people are more likely to post negative reviews if they had a negative experience than to post a positive review if they had a positive experience. I mean, when I say this, it it makes a lot of sense to you, I'm, I'm sure. So let me say this again. People are more likely, you are more likely to post a positive review, a negative review, if you have a negative experience, then a positive review if you had a positive experience. There was a lot of research on that, not by me, but by people long before me, including two Israelis that in uh, 2001 won the Nobel Prize. Actually, their theory won the Nobel Prize. Only one of them, Daniel Kahneman, was still alive in 2001 to get the Nobel Prize for economics for their theory called the prospect theory which essentially said the same. And and I read and quoted in the Book of Trust a lot of research that was done on this issue that really comes to one very simple conclusion. Bad is stronger than good. What does that have to do with trust? Well, here's the thing. If you look at how people talk about trust today, they're going to tell you, do this, do this, do this. Okay, it's all about the new things that you're going to do to be trusted But I think that a bigger emphasis needs to be made on stop doing certain things, bad things that cause you to lose trust. Because if bad is stronger than good, then the impact of you eliminating one behavior that's holding you back from being more trusted is going to be much higher than the positive impact of adding one more positive behavior while that negative behavior is still in play. So that focus on bad is stronger than good, eliminate a bad behavior that's holding you back more than adding a good behavior is, again, one of the things that make my perspective on trust unique and and the work on trust habits unique. Now, I keep talking about trust habits and I talk about my my perspectives on trust, but trust habits is actually more than a theory. Trust habits is actually a seven-step process. You know, sometimes you know what you have to do. The thing is that I'm not going to tell you the whole story of uh, how I lost weight back in 2012 and uh, the realization after an appearance on the NBC Today show, the realization that knowledge is not enough. What you need is motivation. You need actually more than motivation. What you need is you need to form new habits. So for the most part, when you read a book about trust, when you go to a lecture about trust, it's going to leave you at the point of this is what you have to do. Even if this is what you have to stop to do to be more trusted, but this is it. Now you know knowledge is not enough. There is a great quote from uh, F.M. Alexander that I like that says, people do not decide their futures. They decide their habits and their habits decide their futures. So 
you know, I, I don't want to leave. I, I, I am a very practical person and I didn't want to leave you with here is what you have to do to be more trusted. And that's it. You figure out how you do that. Because guess what? It's going to take some effort. And guess what? If you're not motivated enough to do this effort, to go through this effort, you're not going to do it. So what good did it do that I told you what you have to do? So it was important. And that is one of the unique things. And this is actually what Trust Habits is about. Is about forming new habits that change old behaviors and build your trustworthiness. And as a result, the trust in you and all the uh, outcomes that you get from it. But it starts with how do you form habits? And it really did start with my book, Worst Diet Ever, that came out in 2014. By the way, four years before uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear came out. And uh, <laughs> while my book, Worst Diet Ever, really focused initially on, uh, on forming habits that would help you lose weight... But after I published it, I think I realized that it wasn't really a book about losing weight. It was a book about finding the motivation and the process to do the things that are important, but because they're long-term, because there is no immediate gratification, you're not motivated enough intrinsically to do them now. And so that is that was the foundation for Trust Habits. For this seven-step process that would help you form new habits that will change old behaviors and build your trustworthiness and the trust in you. One of the things that I'll say there is uh, how long does it take to form a habit? And if you actually Googled how long does it take to form a habit, you'll find probably the first piece of research you're going to find is going to say 66 days. And there's one that says 21 days. And I think there is a 28 days or something like that. This is how long it takes. Bull. There is no number. The, the way I like to look at it is it's think of uh, the car engine, right? What keeps the car engine running? Well, obviously a lot of things, but but the main one is you keep on injecting fuel, gasoline or solar or whatever. Uh, so as long as you keep getting fuel, that's your intrinsic motivation. The engine keeps running, but it's not enough... You, you, you can't inject fuel and expect the engine to start from a stopping state. For that, you need the starter. So you hold the starter. The starter starts the engine. How long do you need to keep the starter running? This is the, the equivalent of how long does it take for you to form a habit? Because once there is a habit, you don't need the starter anymore, right? And the answer is... Until the engine starts running by itself, until the engine runs by itself and you don't need the starter anymore. Until you're intrinsically motivated by the fact that you're more trusted, more trustworthy, uh, that you don't need the extrinsic motivation to do whatever it is, this new habit, because now it's a habit and it's easy and you don't need to think about it anymore. So... Some of the, the things in, in this, first of all, the, there is a process, the, the trust habits process. It's a seven-step process. But beyond that, it, it has components such as extrinsic motivation, which I just talked about. It has the component of having an accountability partner to increase the probability that you're going to really do form those habits. So 
Another thing that's unique in, in my approach to trust is that I didn't want to leave you just with the knowledge because knowledge is not enough. I wanted to actually give you a process and the process is called trust habits. The last piece of differentiation actually has to do with my recent research that I call trust premium. So at the beginning, when I started researching trust, uh, actually the first book that I ever wrote that had the word trust in the title was uh, the book, Can I Trust You? 50 plus one habits that will make you a more trusted salesperson. I actually started with salespeople. I, I don't know why, but I think one of the reasons was because I did my initial research. Well, my initial, let's call it a survey. Let, let's not call that one research. Um, I did a survey to find out what's the most important quality for you in other people. I asked about six types of people, your boss, your employees, your peers, a salesperson trying to sell you something, your government representative, and your spouse. What's the most important quality? Number one was with 61.2% was trustworthiness. But once I started breaking it out, the highest was for salespeople, 77.4%. By the way, second only by the uh, by your spouse. So you care more about the trustworthiness of a salesperson, 77.4%, than your spouse, 77.2%. So three out of four people said the most important quality for me in a salesperson was their trustworthiness. And to me, that was eye-opening. But then I immediately thought, wait a minute, let's see if your people are willing to put their money where their mouth is. And so I asked, I did another survey and I asked, I, you know, I provided this kind of a home renovation project, about $10,000. I presented to salespeople uh, without using so many words. I suggested one of them is trustworthy, the other one, not so much. Uh, and not, not that you can't trust them, but you don't trust them as much as the first one. And then I asked, what, what would, who would you choose if they both came in with quotes for exactly the same amount? And 100% said the trustworthy one. I mean, think about it. You're asking for the same price as your competitor. And because somehow you manage to be more trusted by the customer, then you're going to get 100% of the business and they're going to get zero. But then I wanted to know if uh, you're really willing to put your money where your mouth is. And I said, what if the trustworthy salesperson would raise their price by 10%? I was still at 100%. 100% would still go with the one who's asking 10% more, $11,000 versus $10,000. How about 20%? At that point, I was at about 58%. We're still willing to go with the trusted one at 20% higher price. 40 Give give or take 40% said, uh, it's going to be one of them. It's just that at this point, I, I don't know anymore. So half of them would probably still choose the trustworthy one and half half would choose the, the cheaper one. I raised the price 50%, 15,000 versus 10,000. And I still had over 20% who said they're going to go with the trustworthy one. And so my conclusion at that time, and, and this was, I think, five years ago or so, that... Um, People are willing to pay, not only that they're 100% to choose you, the trustworthy one, over the less trustworthy one, if the price was the same, but they're actually willing to pay 29.6% premium, trust premium for you. And by the way, guess what? Because it doesn't affect your cost, 
being more trusted doesn't affect your cost. Your products are the same. Your services are the same. The cost of materials is the same. That means that that 29.6% goes straight to your bottom line. And if your bottom line was 10%, that just quadrupled your bottom line. Now, I that 29.6% was related to my to to, to the, this this specific scenario which was home renovation project at about $10,000. But there are other factors that would affect in different industries. So for example, some of them are industry related such as availability of information, commoditization, standardization of prices. You know, but the more standard the prices are, the lower the premium is uh, because actually if the salesperson would raise the price too much then it might actually cause you to distrust them as a result of that there are personal factors that actually allows us to find which customers are willing to pay a higher premium versus lower premium consequences pays plays a, a major role such as uh, you know painting a room there there are certain consequences and again this goes uh, to consequences painting a room uh, if you chose the wrong company what's the worst thing that can happen how about brain surgery not even on you on your child how, how important are the consequences here how important it is for you to trust the brain surgeon who's about to operate. You know, even if you simplify it, don't, don't go brain surgery or, or painting a room, uh, go with photographers. So I, I like the, this example of, um, think of a studio photography project, uh, such as, you know, getting your headshots. Okay, so you're going to the studio. What's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen if, if you chose the wrong photographer? You're not going to like the picture. So you wasted time. Maybe you wasted money if you can't get your money back. Maybe you wasted time not just by sitting in the studio because you needed those, those headshots and now you don't have them. Now you need to go to another photographer. But that's that's really, I mean, there are consequences. It's not that it's consequence-free, but, but they're not too bad. But what about a wedding photographer? What if you chose the wrong wedding photographer and after the wedding, you get the pictures and they suck? Well, the consequences are much more severe because there is no, you're not going to redo the wedding. So even within a pretty narrow profession, such as photographers, there's still a broad set of uh, what would the trust premium be? So I'm going to say that the trust premium for a wedding photographer is going to be dramatically higher than the trust premium for a uh, headshot photographer, studio photographer. And for many reasons, which are all part of uh, my new research, and I, I'll tell you about my new research, which you probably have heard already in previous episodes. Um, you know, just recently, I had a conversation with a friend, Mark Hunter, and uh, he brought up that there was no real research that he was aware of linking trust with uh, with sales. And, uh, you know, being on the side, an adjunct professor uh, at SMU, I, I have access to the digital libraries. So I went and I checked 
And, you know, typically when, when you go and you check for existing research, uh, you're going to put uh, pretty generic words in the title to see what comes up. Uh, so I put the words sales and trust uh, or and derivatives of sales and, and trust. And, and I thought, you know, typically with such generic words, when you search for such generic words, you're going to get tens of thousands of articles and then I'm going to have to pare it down to my shock. 24 articles came up, 24 articles that had derivatives of the word sales and trust in their title. And, and I started looking for, I, I actually had to extend my research. The latest research ever done to connect these two appeared to have been in 2008, 15 years ago. The earliest one, 1916, a year before the U.S. entered World War I. There's not a lot of, there's no research done on this. Never was it quantified. So granted, my 29.6 was a pretty limited survey, but it was never quantified. And at that point, I decided this is going to be another area where I'm going to do something unique. And I went to this groundbreaking, never done before research that I call Trust Premium. But Trust Premium is actually not just research. It's actually also, again, a process to help people who sell products or services, whether they're professionals, they own their own business, sole proprietors, or salespeople, or financial advisors. I actually started with financial advisors. And I quantified and um, I was shocked to find that people are willing on average, and I say on average because once I start sub-segmenting the customers, I'm going to find that there are higher numbers as well as lower numbers. But on average, people are willing to pay 39.4% higher fees to a financial advisor they trust. Let me say this again. People are willing to pay you, the financial advisor, 39.4% higher fees if they trust you more than the other. And again, it's not that they distrust the other. I tried in this research to make sure that I do not portray the other salesperson as someone that you distrust, that you have a reason not to trust them because then the premium is probably going to be infinite. No, I described the other the reference advisor or or any uh, person selling a product or a service as the average and you as a trusted one. 39.4% for a financial advisors. Now, even in insurance, in the insurance field, where the prices are somewhat very visible, somewhat standardized, I found that people are willing to pay 5.5% higher premium, insurance premium, when they buy it from a, a, an insurance agent that they trust. How's that for uh, interesting finding? And, and I'm, I'm still working on trust premium and developing more and more research. I'm, I'm, this is an ongoing research where I add more and more disciplines, more and more industries and so on. Because one of the things that I'm doing here is correlating those different factors to the different industries and to the trust premium in those industries and to behaviors that salespeople uh, demonstrate that might matter more in some industries and less in other industries. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of correlation work right now while I'm still continuing the research and also offering this product um, that allows you actually to know what the uh, trust premium is in your industry 
know what are the factors in your industry that affect that? What are the behaviors that will affect you? And actually uh, then do a, an assessment on your sales performance, yours or your sales team's sales performance with your existing customers so that we can customize a training program. That was never done before. This is, a, again, one unique thing about my approach to trust in general Trust habits as a process and trust premium as a service. There is a lot more that makes my approach to trust, trust habits and trust uh, premium unique. I only gave you three of the eight laws of trust. I didn't go into detail into the unique relative trust model. I didn't go into the different steps of um, the seven-step trust habits process. I didn't go through all the research of trust premium. But to close this, this episode, remember I started when somebody said, well, what's, what's unique about your approach? And, and I'll tell you, I would not have pursued trust as my focal point. As I said before, I would not have allowed my daughter to talk to me in, to talk me into tattooing the word trust on my arm that's the only tattoo that I have. Um, if I if it wasn't unique, if I didn't reach the conclusion that that I have a unique way of looking at it and and acting on it, you know, in 2018, up until that point, most of my work was really, at least under the title of innovation and innovation culture. Uh, that was what I thought I was talking about, and I, I actually had to go back to my PhD dissertation from 2008 through 2010 to find that actually trust played a major role in my conceptual model from back then. But in 2018, I felt that I was in a fork in the road, and I didn't know if I need to stay with my work on trust, on, on innovation, innovation culture, or switch to trust. So I asked about 20 of my closest friends and family members, what do you think I should do? Stick with innovation or, or move to trust? 19 out of 20 said, stick with innovation. So I switched to trust. That's it for today. May trust be with you. This was The Trust Show. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.